I'm excited to be with each and every one of you. Thank you for being here. Amen. I was in prayer this morning, and this has absolutely nothing to do with my sermon, so bear with me for just a moment. But I was in prayer, and I felt impressed upon me about four individuals, four individuals that are struggling with the spirit of offense. And I prayed for each and every one of you. But offense is something that can absolutely destroy your walk with God. And we think we're offended in people. But truly the problem with the spirit of offense is that it actually finds you at odds with God. It finds you at odds with God. Because if we don't have perfect love one for another, if we don't have perfect love for the creation, then we don't have perfect love for the creator. Amen. So I pray that over the course of this service, it has nothing to do with offense. But if you know in your mind and in your heart you're struggling with the spirit of offense, I pray that you would give that to the Lord this morning. Amen. Amen. I didn't mean to turn it all somber on you. I just wanted to share that with you. Offense will destroy you. John chapter 13, and I wanted to go to verse 37 and 38. That's not the way I want to go at all. It's a good scripture anyways. Bear with me just a moment. Pastor, maybe you can help me. Every now and then, when you're writing your notes, you mess up. Anybody ever been there? I will write. All right. Well, while Pastor helps me find that, uh, I want to briefly discuss with you the simple question, what is truth? You can be seated until we, well, we'll just be seated. And when I find the scripture, I'll read it to you. Uh, John eighteen thirty eight, typo. Not 1338. That'll do it every time. Now we're on the right track. I hear people yawning in the congregation. I must be putting you guys to sleep already. John 18 and verse 37. Boom! Now we're on it. Everybody say amen. We're banging out on all cylinders. And verse 37 reads, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I unto the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everybody say the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, this is a profound question, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Let's pray right now. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for your hand on this service. Thank you for your hand on my mind, God. We give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise, Jesus. Speak to our hearts and minds this morning. 
And everybody said, Amen. 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 The, the little seed of distraction has tried to come in already and, and destroy the word, but we're going forward in Jesus' name. Life's greatest questions. These are the quintessentials for every would-be philosopher. What is the meaning of life? How many of you have ever heard that question? Why am I here? What is the relationship between mind and body? Who am I? What happens after death? Is there a higher power? These are all questions that philosophers through the ages have worked very hard to provide legitimate and tangible answers for, answers that, that made sense cognitively. But I would propose to us that all of those questions can be summarized in one short question. And it's no coincidence that Pilate asks this very simple yet very profound question as Jesus is on his way to Calvary. He is preparing for the final aspect of judgment and then he will make his way to Calvary. And Pilate asks this question, what is truth? I have a, I have a little um, thing here I want to I show you guys because I'm a visual learner. Is that all right with everyone? Are you, who in the house by the raising of hands is a visual learner? All right. So how many of you have ever heard the portion of scripture that reads, gird up thine loins? All right. So pretend we are in antiquity and forgive me, I'm about to dishevel myself momentarily. Now, this was, I, I, I brought this out specifically because this was kind of similar to the garment worn all throughout most of antiquity. Now, this is actually considerably shorter than probably what most of the Hebrews would have worn. It would have most likely been a garment that went all the way down to their feet. And this was for several very specific reasons. A lot of times, this little garment that you were wearing would also become a temporary house it had to be breathable yet it had to be warm you could use this as a tent you could use this as a sleeping bag you could use this as a pillow your clothing was pretty much your life but if you have a garment that's all the way down to your feet and it is time for battle I don't know if you any of don't answer this question but if you've ever tried to get in a fist fight in a long dress, hopefully none of our gentlemen, but, but if you've ever tried to get in a fist fight with a long flowy garment, it's, it could be dangerous. You could get tripped up. You could get caught up in your own garments, fall out. I, I have a, yes, there's, I don't have any experience with that, but I do have experience with, with tripping over myself and it's absolutely no fun. And you could be a tremendous fighter on the battlefield, a warrior like none other, but your garments could betray you if you're not careful. And so that scripture actually means gird up thy loins. It means you would take your garment 
And you would take the front half of your garment and you would tuck it up like a diaper. And then you would take the back half of that garment and you would tuck it up like so. So now you have a perfect diaper thing. Humiliating and terrifying. Have you ever fought a man in a diaper? <laughs> I'm telling you what, dude comes out of the house swinging at me in a diaper, I'm booking. <laughs> Doesn't matter if I can take him or not, I'm outie. Amen. But you would go into battle with your loins girded up. And I have a, a, a funny story. It's funny, the, the things that you remember at the most inopportune of times, when Winston and I, uh, we have a good friend by the name of Coulter, when we were about, uh, Winston was maybe 13, I was maybe 14 or 15, Coulter's about the same age as me, this was about the same time that parkour came out. For those of you that don't know, it's just like a, it's the art of jumping over stuff really cool and running across buildings and pretending like you're a ninja just about. And it was, it was just starting to uh, kind of, gain traction in the millennial community, and uh, so we thought we were hardcore parkourers. We were definitely not, but nonetheless, at all times of the day, we could be found climbing across random buildings. Well, one evening, we were on, we liked to skateboard. This We were living in Florida at the time. We liked to skateboard to the beach, and on the way home, we saw a particular building, and I don't know if it was myself or who it was, but we suggested, well, let's parkour this building, and we'll jump to the next one over, and we're all like, yeah, that's cool. So we left our skateboards down here. We climbed up. It's about, it was a two-story building, and so we climbed up the, um, the drain spout on the side of this building, and we're up on top. We're feeling like we've just conquered the world, looking out over all of the little people far below us, two stories down, and uh, all of a sudden we hear uh, like a, a voice. There's a lot of New Yorkers that live in uh, South Florida. They've migrated to warmer climates, and we Hey, what are you doing up there? And we're like, we're, we're, all of a sudden we look around, and we see a guy over in the corner, and he's like, hey, you kids, get down. So we're like, Winston and Coulter and I, we take off running. We go to the opposite side of the building, and he has a buddy, unbeknownst to us, who's already waiting for us over there. We look. We freak out. We run to the other side of the building. It's a two-story building. Winston and Coulter were ahead of me. I have no idea what came over them. You have superhuman abilities when you're 13 and 14 years old. But without looking, they took a flying leap off a two-story building. And I remember I was about to pump the brakes, but I said, there's no turning back now. So I jumped. Now, it was very fashionable. I don't know, young people, if this is still a thing. But amongst skaters, you, even if your parents could afford to give you a belt, you would not wear one. Strictly forbidden. If you absolutely had to gird up thy loins in an appropriate gangster fashion. You would take a couple shoelaces and you would tie them around through, I don't know if this was a thing here in Indiana, it was a big thing in Florida. You remember this one? Yeah. And needless to say, I had girded up my loins with nothing more than a shoelace. And when I hit the ground off a two-story jump with two gentlemen hot in pursuit, my britches hit the floor. And it was at this moment the most inopportune of times, I remember a simple phrase I had heard so many times throughout the course of my life. 
talking about the whole armor of God. And I thought to myself in that moment of time, I don't know why it came to me then, super inopportune, but it came to me and I said, I should have worn my belt of truth. And I pulled up my britches and proceeded to run off and we, we made it off into the sunset. But I have no idea why that occurred to me at that moment in time. But what I do know is the belt of truth is very important. The belt of truth is the most, probably the most important aspect of the armor of God because if you have a wardrobe malfunction, it doesn't matter how good your defense is. It doesn't matter how good your offense is. It doesn't matter how good your armor is. If you get tripped up in your own garments, almost definitely you will be slain on the field of battle. What is truth? We need to be careful. We don't become too infatuated in this day and age with the cultural phenomenon of miracles or the perceived power of doctrine. In this day and age, more than ever before, we must be able to answer the simplest yet most profound question there is. What is truth? What is truth? As believers... We are surrounded by truth on a consistent basis. We hear it preached. We sing about it. We rub shoulders with individuals that believe in it. But over the course of time, you can begin to worship doctrine more than deity. You can worship the gift more than the gifter. You can worship the symbol and not the spirit. You can worship a man and not the manifestation. You can worship the miracle and not the miracle worker. Power isn't in. Oh, power isn't in talking in tongues. This, this might rock your world, but power is not even in baptism in Jesus' name. There is something greater at work that is enabling all of these things to possess an essence of power. Jesus never said, preach Holy Ghost infilling. He didn't say, preach miracles. He didn't say, preach anything else save the gospel. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. I wish, man, I thought I was at an apostolic church. He said, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the one true and living king, Jesus Christ. That is the truth. There is none beside him. There is none like him. I know I'm messing with some theology or something this morning because I've got about two of you backing me up. But Jesus is truth. You can talk in tongues until your tongue slaps your brain right out of your head. You can pray in the spirit. You can cast out devils. You can work miracles. And you can still be as worthless as a plug nickel. How do we know? Great white throne judgment. Oh, but Lord... I, I did many mighty works in your name. I, I cast out demons in your name. I had six-hour prayer meetings in your name. Amen. 
You can pray in the spirit. You can cast out devils. You can perform miracles. You can even be anointed and not have grasp of the truth. How do we know this? Saul was still anointed to be the king of Israel. David, the Lord smote his heart when he cut just an edge off the garment of Saul. He repented. Eli was still the high priest. He had two sons that were living like absolute devils, but he was still God's man. Adam still walked in perfection. God still called for him in the garden. But truth was not with him. That's because the power has never been in the miracle. The power has always been in the message. It's never been in the demonstration or the anointing. It's always been. The miracle has always been in the message. God performed three miracles in the wilderness for Elijah. He was hiding out in a cave. Ravens, who I just recently found out. This is a fun fact for all of you that don't know, and maybe some of you do know, and you're light years ahead of me. I recently found out that the raven slash crow is actually the most intelligent bird species there is. I never knew that. Mind-blowing. I was always looking to the parrot or the, you know, the owl. This is interesting. The owl is actually one of the most unintelligent animals or unintelligent birds. I, I never knew that, but I always connected them with infinite wisdom and, you know, the <laughs> creepy full head turn thing. But he's being fed by ravens in the wilderness. And all of a sudden there's a, there's a shaking. And a wind rips through and splits the mountains and knocks down every tree. And immediately after there's a fire comes raging through. And Elijah's just in the fetal position hiding in this cave. And all of a sudden, the scripture tells us a still, small voice. The miracles were intended to get his attention. But the power was never in those things. The power was not in the splitting or the shaking of the earth. The power was not in the wind. The power was not in the fire. The power was in the still, small voice. Amen, amen, amen. Amen. If we're not careful, we can become so enthralled with lights, with extravagant things, with what we perceive to be the miraculous. There's a lot of people I have known that it, as you grow and you walk, you have to hit a certain point in your development with God. Actually, Brother Devon and I, we were just talking about something like this. But there, I know of people, they, they, they chase after one thing. They chase after supernatural power, supernatural anointing, supernatural things. I was 
I was thinking of a friend of mine. He was a tremendous, he's a tremendous preacher in Bible school. Tremendous, tremendous, really gifted. And I remember seeing his social media feed. My guy was like at every single conference there was. And I was envious. I was truly envious. I was, I really wanted to be at those events. You know, I wanted to, to feel what he was feeling and, and, you know, be in the presence of the Lord in that specific manner. But, you know, the unfortunate thing is my friend, he's not living for the Lord today. And I was in prayer about that. I was like, man, how can you go to so many? How can, how can you see so many things? Not just in the States. He was traveling abroad, going overseas, going to these huge crusades, doing all kinds. Of, how is it that he lost out when he saw so much? It's just like, I have to ask myself, how did Judas, how did Judas lose out when he saw so much? How did the, how did the apostles, how did they doubt when they had seen so much? And I felt impressed in prayer. Those things are superficial. They were only ever intended. The spirit of God moving through was only ever intended to grab one's attention and cause them to draw closer and deeper. Because after the miracles sweep through, there is nothing extravagant. When the Spirit of the Lord visits you, I promise you it will be in a still, small voice. And we have to begin as apostolics, as Christians, as Pentecostals to recognize, to see through. I, I was telling Whitney just this just the other day. I was like, man, sometimes it feels like in our walk with God, it's just like you're, you're fighting through, wading through mud like every day. And I look over and I, you, you see other people that seem to be, just be whoo, straight to the stars. I mean, like the sky's the limit. Is, is, am I speaking to anybody? Does anybody feel like this? You ever feel like you're walking in slow motion in a marathon backwards and everybody's just like passing you by and you're like, you can see that it seems like the finish line is getting farther and farther and farther away. Sometimes that's how life is. That's how it feels anyways. But we have to be able to perceive what is in fact truth and what is the superficial nature of God trying to sweep over and grab someone's attention and if we're constantly looking for the fire and we're constantly looking for the shaking of the earth and we're constantly seeking after the wind sweeping through and we're so caught up in those things we can miss the still small voice we can miss what is in fact truth it's because the power has never been in the miracle, it's never been in the demonstration, it's never been in the anointing. The thing that makes all of those possible is the message. Amen. I want to show you right now the power of God. What do we believe is the opposite of evil? What is the opposite of evil? Good. A lot of us would say good. Good is the opposite of evil. It's what superheroes teach us. I don't know why I'm holding this. It just seemed more. 
Good is the opposite of evil. That is what we're taught. Good is the opposite of evil. I want to read to us John chapter 3 and verse 20 through 21. John chapter 3. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But catch this. But he who does the truth. Maybe I'll read that one more time. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he who does the truth. The opposite of evil is not good. The opposite of evil is truth. The opposite of darkness is light. The opposite of evil is truth. That's... There's another common misconception that the opposite of fear is courage or bravery. The opposite of fear is love. Jesus said, or the scripture says, perfect love casts out all fear. We have to be able to recognize what truth is right down to its very definition. We, as a, as a culture, have perceived that the opposite of evil is in fact good. That's why people believe, they truly believe in their hearts that doing good things will get you to heaven. And I, I, don't get me wrong, I want you to be good. I want you to be servants of God. I want you to be servants of those around you. We are designed to serve one another. That's how, a part of how we fulfill the Great Commission. But good is not the opposite of evil and therefore is not a prerequisite to salvation. The opposite of evil is truth. And therefore, if we want to walk one day on streets of gold, if we want to see Jesus face to face, if we truly want to walk in the power and the might of his righteousness and his name and his blood, we have to recognize one thing. We have to buy the truth and sell it not. We have to grab hold of the horns of the altar. We have to claw our way to the top of Golgotha. We have to wrap our arms around the cross. And we have to say at all costs, no matter what, I will not sell the truth. I have bought it and I will not release it. I know what it is. I know it's the only way that I can be saved. Amen. Truth is the opposite of evil. Amen. I believe the scripture says that truth loved us. That truth set us free. It wasn't doctrine that loved us and set us free. It wasn't miracles that loved us and set us free. Wasn't restoration, wasn't harvest, wasn't the precepts of revival that loved us and set us free. It was truth that loved us and set us free. God is, or Jesus is, this is a scripture we should all know. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the light. Sometimes 
we can get so wrapped up in our culture. And that's, I, I, that's why I find it really interesting to, there's a, a, a couple of uh, Jewish gentlemen that I have occasionally had the opportunity to, to speak with and regarding the Old Testament. And I, I've um, had a couple other previous encounters with rabbis before. And I find it's really interesting it's sad on the one hand because you can be so close, close to truth and, and not truly recognize it. But on the other hand, the very cool thing about studying with them is there is a specific insight into the culture of which this book is written in. And sometimes it's hard for you and I to see it. We're Gentiles and we look at everything in this word through a very specific lens. It's called 21st century America. And that's the lens that we look at this word through. That's how we view it. That's how we perceive it. And it's very difficult sometimes to get outside of that. And as a result, we can get wrapped up in culture. We can get wrapped up in doctrine. Those, are, those things are truths. They're truths. Doctrine is a truth. But it's not the truth. I, I, I hope you're still with me here. You can, you can fall in love with truths. And in the process put the truth. Outside of where it's supposed to be. You can fall so in love with the cultural precepts of Pentecost. That you fall more in love with the culture you fall more in love with a truth than with the truth. I, I was in San Francisco one time. Winston will remember this. I was in San Francisco one time, and we were out evangelizing the streets. And any of you that have ever been to San Francisco, you know it's a very interesting place. It's not like Indianapolis. Definitely not like Richmond. They got every shape, shade, and color of whatever you want to be out there. If you want to identify as a unicorn, San Francisco is your place. You think I'm joking, but there, there's people out there that identifying as animals. But we were on the streets. We were just evangelizing. We'd had a chance to minister and talk to and pray with quite a few people. And we came across this particular gentleman. You'll probably remember him. He was uh, clearly homeless. And we went up to him. We just started talking to him about the gospel, telling, sharing with him how much Jesus loves him. And we went to... I was about to quote a scripture, and I said, I can't even remember what scripture it was, but I'll just say John 1.1. We were going. And as I, I, I knew the scripture, but as I'm turning to it, he, he quotes the whole scripture. And then he keeps going. And I'm, flip, I'm, you know, I'm flipping over my Bible, and he keeps going. You remember this guy? The, he, the man quoted like the entire first chapter of John. And then I said, well, man, that's fantastic. You, you probably know this scripture. And we, we went over to another scripture, and he quoted almost that entire chapter too, verbatim, didn't miss a word. And then we went to another scripture, and he quoted that whole chapter. The man was phenomenal. Tremendous insight. The amount of scripture he had memorized was ridiculous. It was amazing. He told us uh, when we were leaving, you know, he said, I have about three quarters of the Bible memorized. I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm on my uh, first year of, of Bible college here, and uh, 
He was tremendous. But he had fallen so in love with the, just the precepts of just memorizing words on a page that when we actually tried to convey to him the things that he had memorized, they were locked in his brain, but we tried to reveal to him the truth within those words. It was like little iron curtains came down and he, he closed up. He, would have, he wouldn't hear it from us because to him... There, this wasn't anything supernatural. To him, this was literally the most sold, most printed book of all times. And it was nothing more than just some really good philosophical and theological writings. So close to the truth. But you can fall more in love with a truth than the truth. He couldn't actually feel. He wasn't actually looking for Jesus Christ in the pages of the book he was reading. He was simply just reading and memorized to say he had done it. He fell more in love with a truth than the truth. Don't get me wrong. I want you to memorize and read as much scripture as you possibly can. But at the end of that reading, you need to sit back and you need to pray. Now, Lord, speak to me. Meditate on his word. What do you want me to receive and change upon the reading of this word? Lest we fall more in love with just a truth than the truth. You understand what I'm saying? Is this making sense? We have to buy the truth and sell it not. We have to fall in love with Jesus Christ. Fall in love with his word. Buy the truth and sell it not. I asked, leaned over and asked pastor as I was meditating about this message. I was reminded of a story that Bishop tells of a, a gentleman that they met while ministering in communist China. His name was Brother Keen. Brother Keen? Brother Keen. And he had a heart for the Lord. He bought truth. So much so that on one particular occasion, Brother Keen was writing a letter. A letter to a missionary. I don't think there was anything, uh, anything uh, incriminating on there. there was no, he wasn't talking about doctrine. He wasn't getting into you know, any theological devices of scripture. He wasn't going into any detail. I think it was he just greeted him. In the name of Jesus or something as simple as that in his letter. This is, maybe, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll make this, this particular story for anybody that is uh, offended. I don't know why that's still on my heart. But I, I saw a meme here recently. Um, and it was, it was during the filming of the, um, what is it, that, The Passion of the Christ. And here's Mel Gibson. He's like all done up. And it must have been a stressful point in the filming of the movie because he kind of is they're sitting on a bench and he's kind of got his hands between his legs and he's just looking down. And sitting next to him, sitting next to Mel Gibson, who directed the movie, is the gentleman that's playing uh, the uh, Jesus Christ in the movie. And uh, for those of you that don't know, that the filming of that movie was so hard on that actor. He spent so much time in the frigid cold 
uh, literally hanging up on a cross for the filming of the movie that I think he had like trip, double or triple uh, bypass surgery on his heart. And he had some severe health issues after the filming of that movie. It was so strenuous. But he, in this particular meme, Mel Gibson is sitting next to the gentleman that's playing Jesus Christ, and he's all in character, and he's got blood all over him, and he's got the crown of thorns. And the meme just said, me in 2020 telling Jesus how bad my year has been. And that's, unfortunately, that's, that's the truth of our life. We're extremely blessed. I've been to third world countries where there, there is no running water. There is no power. There is no electricity. You eat the same type of meal every day. It's probably rice in a little bowl. You live in a home with a dirt floor. And that's the extent of your life. Your whole family might make two, three hundred bucks a year. If, if any kind of, God forbid, any kind of storm comes through, probably your whole neighborhood will be leveled because there's absolutely no building codes. In, in, in Nepal, it was the most unreal thing I've ever seen. I, I drove a motorcycle or a scooter, I think, for the first time ever in Nepal. And there was the traffic. There is no laws. I want to I, I tell people that are out rioting and they're, they're anarchists. There are plenty of countries that you can go to <laughs> where you will fit right in. And I guarantee you, you'll spend about 48 hours there and you'll be on the next flight back to the States. But there was, there's, no, there's no laws whatsoever. There is no sides of the road. It's just come and go. And you're on a scooter just trying not to get squashed by, by giant buses and trucks and guys carrying little carts and, and people, humans carrying copious amount of weight on their heads, like huge stacks of bricks just making their way down the street in and amongst traffic. The most unreal thing you've ever seen. We're so... Abundantly blessed in this country. There is safety. There is order. And I know things aren't the way they were in 2019. But 2020 has still been a good year in this country. We are still blessed. Amen. Sometimes we just got to sit back and tell ourselves that. I, I heard someone say this and I shared it a couple months ago. This is something we need to get into our mind. What if you woke up one morning and all you had is what you had thanked God for the previous day? Man, when I heard that, it smote my heart because I realized I hadn't thanked God for a single thing. I hadn't thanked God for my life. I hadn't thanked God for my wife, for my family, for my children, for my church. I hadn't thanked God for a house to sleep in, for bed to, uh, a bed to crawl in, a therapeutic mattress. God bless it. And I hadn't thanked Him for a hot shower and a warm meal to eat and a job to go to. I hadn't thanked Him for a vehicle to drive me to church, to work. I hadn't thanked Him for any of those things. God's been good to us. God's been good to us, but... I was thinking about this gentleman, Brother Keen. He wrote a letter, and he made mention of one simple thing. Whether it was, God bless you in his, the closing of his letter, or I greet you in the name of Jesus. Something as simple as that. And you know what the Communist Party did upon auditing his mail? They sent a couple officers over. Hopefully they were dressed a little more aggressively than this. But he sent... They were probably in their Mao suits, I'm sure. Sent a couple officers over, and you know what? They took Mr. Keene off to prison for simply writing a letter that greeted a former missionary in the name of Jesus. You can have a seat. And for, wasn't, 
300 days. It wasn't a year. It wasn't two years. It wasn't five years. It wasn't 10 years. It wasn't 15 years. For 20 years, Mr. Keene served in a communist prison for simply writing a letter to a missionary. And every day, they would come get Mr. Keene, and they would take him to the main office of the prison, and they would say, Mr. Keene, this morning you are once again going to cite the Communist Manifesto. And if there's any problems with that, we have no problem with beating the absolute mess out of you and depriving you of food and water. And for 20 years, this is how Mr. Keene lived. But do you know what? When Mr. Keene walked out of that prison 20 years later, he walked out of that prison in Jesus' name because he said, I have bought the truth and I have sold it not. I have bought the truth and I have sold it not. And it doesn't matter what I have to face. I know what truth is. I know who my Jesus is. And if he brought me out of this, he can bring me through anything. I'm taking it day by day. No matter what I have to face, I know in my heart and in my mind what truth is. And I refuse to sell it. I refuse to be swayed. I refuse to be turned away. I have bought the truth, and I will not sell it. Amen. Amen. Stand with me, everyone. I want to close with this. I, this is a, a documentary I've shared with a lot of people. and Really interesting. I won't go into the details, but it's about social media. And it's overwhelming power on today's day and age. And at the beginning there, the documenters are asking all these previous executives, tier one executives for companies like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest. They're asking them, you know, there's a problem. There's a problem with what is going on, the data collection. The, there's a problem with uh, the, these huge caches of data that are being stored off-site. They know everything about you, every aspect of your interests, your social life. These computers, these AI, the artificial intelligence, it's tracking, it's mapping every aspect of your life. There is a problem. And they asked each and every one of these guys, what is the problem? And there was silence. And, and they showed this in the documentary each time they asked at the very beginning of the documentary, each one of these individuals, what is the problem? Interestingly enough... Each one of these individuals was kind of stunned. You know, I, I don't know. It's a lot to try to put into words. One gentleman said, I'm, I'm trying to encompass a lot of problems into one statement. And then at the very end of this documentary, they ask the question again. And they only show one gentleman answering. I believe he was with Facebook. And they said, they asked the first question that they asked one more time. And they asked, what is the problem? And he said, well, I guess... The problem is truth. The problem is truth. There is no truth. Truth is whatever you want it to be. And can I just tell you, that is the premise of the entire struggle that we as believers in this day and age are struggling against. The world has no precepts of truth. There is no definitive truth. Truth is whatever you would like it to be. This is the fight that we are waging 
right now as believers. Some of us know it and some of us don't. But when you leave here today, I want you to know one thing. Jesus Christ is the truth. And no matter what comes against us, we have bought the truth and we refuse to sell it. We refuse to sell it. We refuse to surrender it. No matter how convincing an argument may be. Not even if it makes sense. You know, and the book of Revelation tells us that all but us will take the mark of the beast. They're going to be pretty convincing, my friends. Pretty convincing. There's some smart people out there. Some folks that are a whole lot smarter than us. It's, the scripture tells us that the children of darkness are wiser than the children of the light. There's some very intelligent people out there. They will come to us with everything that they have. And some of what they bring to us will actually make sense in our mind's eye. But we have to be sold out. So much so that this compass will always point true north. And no matter what we perceive might be somewhat correct, we refuse to surrender the truth for a truth. We refuse to sell the truth. I want us to consecrate ourselves this morning. And as the music plays and as you make your way forward, I believe God wants to work on us. But I want us to dedicate ourselves. It's why the Shema teaches us, you know, it says, teach it to your children in the way. That the, the, Israel's, the Israelites, they, uh, they take this very seriously. I think this is also something we were, Brother Devon and I were just talking about. The Israelites take, the, the Jews, they take this very seriously. And they wind those cables around their hand. And on, sitting on the top of their hand is a little box. And then they have another that goes on their forehead. It's just little black boxes. And inside, they took the scripture so literally. They said, we're, we're going to wear this. We're going to wear this truth on our hand and on our head. And inside, there's little scrolls that just read Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. Hero Israel. The Lord our God is, I wonder, can we say it like we mean it? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Amen. As the music plays and as you make your way forward, let's consecrate ourselves. No matter what, God, I'm sold out to the truth. Jesus Christ, you are the way, the truth, and the life.